0: Welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, And today we are really lucky to be joined by Levi Boxell, who's a PhD candidate in economics at Stanford University. Welcome to the show, Levi.
1: Hi, Lev. Thanks for having me.
0: This is going to be a lot of fun. So you've been doing some really interesting work. I want to start with the work you did on bias in news coverage during the the 2016 U.S. election. It was interesting because oftentimes you read about bias in the news but it's they're talking about textual bias, the stuff that people are writing about. But you you were looking at images, so tell us what you did and, and what you found.
1: Yeah, so in, in this study, you know, as you said, a lot of people look at the words people say in, in news articles. So you know, do they say Obamacare or Affordable Care Act? You know, gun rights versus um, you know gun violence. Words like that that have kind of a clear liberal or conservative slant to them. But a lot of the news we consume is visual. We see images of people, we see um, images of of an event. And so what I wanted to do is try and construct a visual measure of slant, which to do so, I collected a database of images used on the front page of online um, news websites. And then I trained a machine learning algorithm to detect the faces of politicians. And so once these faces are detected, I can then use kind of standard tools to measure the emotional content of each face. So does that politician, is, it, is he or she being portrayed as angry, sad, neutral, happy? And then what I can do is look at, okay, so when Donald Trump is portrayed on Fox News, what type of emotions are typically used, and compare that to how Hillary Clinton is is, um, portrayed on Fox News, and then do the same thing on a more liberal news website such as CNN. And sort of the the main finding from that is that first, bias can present itself in two different ways. One is just the choice of who to cover. Do Do you cover Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton more? And second, how you cover them, conditional on actually covering them. So partisan websites tend to cover the opposing candidates. So Fox News will cover um, Hillary Clinton relatively more than Donald Trump. And vice versa, CNN will cover Donald Trump relatively more than Hillary Clinton. And in addition, they tend to cover the opposing side. When they do cover them, they use more negative emotions. So... They, they make the candidate appear fearful, angry, sad, um, surprised, whereas they make their own candidate appear happy. And so th- there's other um, evidence that the way people are portrayed are, has an important effect on our perception of them. And, and so th- this type of um, nonverbal or visual media bias can have important effects on um, how, how people perceive the candidates.
0: That's very clear. Um, I I have maybe what might be a really silly question, but you know, with Fox News, it's pretty clear that it's a conservative outlet, and with CNN, it's more liberal. But how do you actually? How do you measure that?
1: Yeah. So how how do I measure how conservative or liberal a given website is? Right. Well, I do in the in this paper is I do a um, use an audience based measure of the kind of political leans of a website. So there's another study that collected data on news articles shared by people on Twitter and looked at whether those individuals followed Donald Trump or whether they followed Hillary Clinton. And so it basically constructs a measure of um, the relative share of users who shared an article on Twitter who followed Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. So Fox News, um, most of the people who share articles from Fox News are going to be Donald Trump followers. And so it's going to get a a more conservative um, website score. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas if if people are sharing MSNBC, Vox.com, websites like that, those are people going to be typically people who um, follow Hillary Clinton. And so this measure of slant constructed based on Twitter users and which articles they share and who they follow, which politicians they follow, it's highly correlated with other measures of slant that have been used in the literature based on web browsing data. So um, my take is it's a pretty good measure of roughly what is the ideological composition of a website's users. And so w- what my paper shows is that websites choose images that kind of cater to their um, the ideological composition of their users, similar to how they choose text-based um, what, what words they use, what topics they cover to cater to their audi- audiences as well.
0: Okay, and I, so I teach a 12th grade political econ class, and I use Vox EU a lot. I, I got your article from VoxEU, and um, I've shown the students your, your most recent work. And the question that comes up with your work, but with other, people, other people's work as well is, how is this economics? This is so cool, but this yeah. doesn't feel like economics. So maybe you can talk to the audience about what economics, you know, what it could not be and, and why we shouldn't think about it in such a narrow way.
1: When I, when I tell people, you know, I, I study economics, then they, the first thing they ask me is like, you know, what stock should I buy? What's, what's gonna happen to the <laughs> economy, yeah. things like that. And, and so then ha- half my time spent, you know, trying to explain, well, a lot, if not most economists don't actually study that. And so what kind of taking a high level, what, what do economists study? Um, economics at, at its root is, is about understanding how people make choices um, under constraints, given, given their preferences. And so when we're thinking about small decisions at the individual level or microeconomics, at the firm level or how people make choices and um, to enter the labor force or returns to schooling. you know A lot of those aspects are studied by economists. And then when you aggregate up a bunch of individual decisions, that's when you get to the macro um, economy as a whole. And so macro economists then study that. Beyond that, you know, economics has sort of branched out, maybe a bit further. Um, so, admittedly, some some of my work um, on polarization would fit more in um, political science than economics traditionally. And so, it's I, I, I would consider that a lot. Some of my work to be more interdisciplinary. I think media bias you can, you can think of as um, economics because it's ultimately about how do these firms these news outlets choose what content to produce so it's a it's a question about production which you know in standard economics 101 you might think of production as producing some widget or some good and for media outlets what they their production their good that they're producing is the news and so we can th- apply similar logic about supply and demand to think about what shapes these content production decisions? And, and so one of them is going to be demand. So, you know, there's there's a good amount of evidence that suggests um, news outlets cater to the, the demands of their users. So um, at, at this point, it wouldn't make sense for Fox News to start producing a, bu- a bunch of liberal news from mm-hmm. a from a profit maximization um, perspective because their users, their viewers don't want to see that. They don't want to hear that. And so this profit motive can drive a lot of these production decisions um, in in, traditional good markets such as cell phones or clothes, but also in uh, markets for information such as social networks or um, the media industry.
0: So I want to go back to your your work on media bias and... I connected to the stuff you've been doing on polarization. What what are those connections in your mind?
1: Yeah, so there's been a lot of discussion about how the media shapes political polarization. And, and you know, one narrative that you hear recently a lot is about how internet and social media driven um, kind of news can can draw and opinions can drive polarization. Um, so you know what One aspect of my research has focused on kind of documenting some basic facts about political polarization. And there's maybe kind of three stylized facts that I like to emphasize. And and the first is that at least in in terms of mass polarization or polarization of voters in the United States, it's really been increasing since at least the 1980s. And so this is well before um, the internet, the rise of social media. And so there's just a lot of the rise in political polarization that these more recent media technologies simply can't explain because they um, you know predated these technologies the, the rise in polarization. Um, the, the second kind of stylized fact is that you know people who are older are polarizing just as quickly over the past twenty some years as people who are younger. so the the younger generation that tends to use these um, newer technologies at a higher prevalence have been polarizing um, the same or less quickly as older generations that tend to use more traditional news outlets such as um, cable TV. And then lastly you know one of the recent work that we have looks at polarization across a bunch of different um, 12 different developed democracies in, in the world and we find quite disparate patterns so, Countries like Germany, Norway, Sweden, they have long-run declines in political polarization, whereas the U.S. has experienced this long-run increase in political polarization over the past 40 years. And so, you know, Internet, social media, these are technologies that are kind of been adopted uniformly across these set of countries. So, again, it kind of questions the narrative or, or the importance of social media and the Internet Um, for driving political polarization Um, and and when you think about what type of if if there's some type of media to blame what sort of fits these stylized facts the best and and that would be cable tv so you know the rise of cable tv is really since 1980s um 1980 was when cnn was created and um, fox news kind of grew in the 90s and then, you know, it caters to this older audience, um, particularly today. And then lastly, the, the kind of cable TV environment in the United States is relatively distinct from um, the broadcast markets in a lot of other countries. So, the, you know, in, in comparison to the UK or Germany or a lot of these other European countries, there's no major public broadcasting um, news channel that that people go to you know pbs is just substantially under underfunded relative to um you know bbc or or some of these other alternatives in other countries and so you have a lot more the the share of the market that's um kind of um dominated by these private cable tv 24-hour news channels um is a lot larger in the us relative to other markets and so um, you know, that doesn't mean the Internet and social media have no role in political polarization, but um, it means maybe they're getting a bit too much attention um, than they deserve.
0: Mm. And so just the takeaway is the more cable television the country has, you're finding in general, there's more polarization and the more they rely on public broadcasting, so the less polarization? Yeah,
1: so, so th- there is a correlation in the data that, you know, Places that have experienced long run declines in polarization are the places that tended to have more investments in public broadcasting. Um, You know, there's a the old mantra: correlation is not causation. So we don't have evidence to speak to. You know, we can't say that there's clear causal relationship between those variables, but they are highly correlate or reasonably correlated and. Um that makes us, you know, maybe put a little more weight on, on that explanation relative to the internet and social media where there's l- less correlation.
0: This again may seem like a silly question, but can you ever prove causation?
1: That's a good question. So, you know, in, in a lot of settings, it's ultimately up to, you know, you're going to have to make some assumptions in order to establish causality. And so kind of the gold standard in, in science, in social science, as well is you know, a randomized control trial. You, ha- you have a control group and you have a treatment group and you randomly assign the treatment to individuals. And so, you know, looking at the efficacy of a vaccine, this is what they do. They randomly assign the true vaccine to people they randomly assign a placebo and they don't tell the people which one they got. And so that gives a causal estimate of of the effect of that technology. And so that kind of model that's been applied in medicine for a while has been also adopted in the social sciences. So one of my co-authors he has a paper where he pays people to quit Facebook for um, I think four to eight weeks. And looks at what happens to kind of their news consumption, their well-being, political polarization, and so he he finds that there is a bit of a drop in political polarization as a result of you know quitting Facebook um, for four to eight weeks. Um, you know, a limitation of these sort of randomized control trials is it's a bit of an artificial setting, so you know. Someone paying you right now to quit Facebook for four to eight weeks isn't really the same as mm-hmm. um, the rise of Facebook um, naturally. So you know, Facebook and the domination of internet technologies might mean okay, it makes sense to cut cut the cable TV cord. But if someone's just paying you to quit Facebook for four to eight weeks, you might not go out and get cable TV. And so these substitution patterns are important to understand. And, and so. That, that can be a limitation of these randomized control trials. They, they have high internal validity, meaning, you know, they're not going to be biased in, in, in the treatment effects that they're estimating within the study, but they might not have high external validity in the sense that they apply to kind of the, the effects we're interested in in the real world.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Economists and social scientists have worked on other um strategies strategies to try and um, estimate causal effects using kind of natural experiments but the, these ultimately require some type of assumption about about the world and so they're they're not you know model free in that sense
0: I was interested in in one of your papers you talk about the role of elite polarization and sort of the impact that that has on overall polarization when I'm looking at the 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 figure there, it looks like the U.S. is kind of way off the charts in terms of elite polarization. And you're measuring elite polarization by congressional roll call, right?
1: Yeah. So one of the, I I don't create a, we don't really create a new measure of elite polarization. We use some existing um, literature. Um, A a common way that elite polarization is measured is using roll call votes. Um, And so that's looking at how um, Republicans and Democrats in Congress vote on different pieces. Um, in our paper, we actually use a slightly different measure. We use a, a measure of kind of expert ratings of how polarized each, each country is because um, there's less consistent data on roll call voting across a bunch of countries, whereas there are, um, there are data on expert ratings of how polarized different countries are. Um, and so that's what we use. But um, the most frequently used measure, probably in the United States, at least, is this measure of roll call um, differences.
0: And I'm, I'm kind of curious, why is it that the U.S. is so far? Why are we such an outlier when it comes to elite polarization? And when did that happen? Why did it happen?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And, and you know, maybe there's one important distinction to make is, is that, you know, A lot of the work I've been talking about focuses on trends. So what has changed over the past um, 40 some years, whereas another important difference is the level. So, you know, maybe the United States started at a low level of polarization in the 1950s. And so it has had more room to grow relative to some of these other European countries, which maybe had a higher level of polarization in the 1950s. Um, and, and then, so less room to grow, or maybe even room to to fall. And so there is some evidence um, of that, in the in the sense that um, both on measures of elite polarization and in mass polarization of voters, it does appear as if the you know the 1950s was a relatively calm period in U.S. politics, and since then we've had this. L- Quick increasing trend in political polarization that's been increasing more quickly than a lot of other countries, and so other countries have started maybe at a higher level of polarization, mm-hmm. and so there's somewhat of this convergence that's been occurring over the the past forty or fifty years, and mm-hmm. so what why you know what caused or prompted this um, level of polarization now rather than at a different point in time, so kind of you know political polarization of elites really kicked off in the, in the 60s, early 70s. Um, and a lot of it seems to, you know, I think a common narrative is that it has to do with kind of the civil rights era and the great realignment. And so this is where you had conservative Southern Democrats who then shifted over to the Republican party in association with the civil rights era, And so now you're having this realignment of the parties along this racial dimension. And so there's a lot of work where, you know, the more people are aligned on on different group identities, whether that's their partisan identity, their ideological identity, um, their racial identity, their religious identity, the easier it is for them to dislike those on the other side. And so, you know, it kind of seems funny to talk about a conservative Democrat at this point in time, but that used to be, Mm -hmm. uh, that used to be, you know, there used to be such persons.
0: Yeah. Well, you could make the argument right then that that polarization that we're witnessing is a positive thing, right? Like if one of the two parties is moving to a place where it's less racist. I mean, isn't that good that the parties disagree on something, whereas before they, they agreed that they were both racist? Yeah, that, that's
1: that's right. So there certainly can be instances where you do want polarization. And so, you know, we, we often view polarization as fighting as bad, but, you know, there are, you know, there's many circumstances in history where we went to war and started, you know, had violent, our, the extent of our polarization led to violence. And we view that not that the violence was a good thing, but it was a good thing to do. So the civil war, mm-hmm. um, you know, it wasn't necessarily a good thing that a civil war had to occur, but it was good thing that, you know, many people would think that it did occur and that the polarization led to that because it, it ultimately led it to, to the defeat of a Um, of a bad institution and so similar with you know World War II um, as as well and so you know there can be positives to polarization in the sense that it can you you can have animosity to um, bad behavior or bad norms and so if if, you know a certain side is exhibiting anti-democratic norms um, then it seems that you know, many people might think polarization and animosity towards that side is a positive thing. Um, political polarization can also give the voters clearer choices. So, mm-hmm. you know, if if parties aren't distinguished along ideological lines, then, you know, as a voter, it can be hard to, to determine who should I vote for. And so um, if you are a voter who has ideological preferences, then having the party split along ideological lines makes it easier for you to make that choice. Um, of course, there are a lot of other bad things that go along with political polarization, but um, it's not all bad.
0: Mm-hmm. And I- I'm curious, when you talk about sorting before, it always seems strange to me that you'd have these people who are pro-choice, pro-vaccine, um, more restrictions on guns, maybe into Keynesian economics. Why should those things all come together that that feels like i mean it's i mean i live in prospect heights brooklyn i'd say 90% of the people here all sort of fit into those categories but why does that happen that those things come together with gravitational pull and you don't have more people who are say pro second amendment but also pro choice
1: yeah that's a good question and I, I agree. There's there's a lot of these dimensions that, you know, don't necessarily have to um, be related to one another. Um, you know, w- when you have a two-party system like in the United States, I think to some extent there's, there's a natural tendency to, you know, split a lo- along um, these partisan lines and then follow the, the norms within that party. So there's strong social pressure to kind of for conformity. So, you know, living in in a homogeneous area like you're at, it's going to be hard to be someone who's kind of disagrees with the the majority consensus in that area. And so there's a lot of social pressure to either conform or keep your views to yourselves. And so I think at at a party level that can occur where, you know, the party Republican or, or, or Democratic Party needs to create some type of platform and, and coherent views that they're propagating and kind of advertising to voters. And so once that's chosen at the elite level, it sort of trickled, can trickle down to the masses and to the voters where I see. Um, once, once you vote for a party and identify with that party, you kind of subsume that, that party's um, ideology. Um,
0: yeah that, makes, and, a lot of, and, that and, makes a lot of sense yeah go ahead.
1: yeah, and, and I was just going to say like you know as there's been increased nationalization of politics that I think also increased mm-hmm. the extent to which there's been greater alignment so like previously you know you had the southern democrats and so there's sort of this regional split also that was important and now that's sort of gone away and, and, and it's been a lot harder for um, you know th- there used to be more maybe pro, um, pro-life pro Democrats and and that's sort of gone away. And so there were periods that, where there was a bit more maybe heterogeneity in terms of the ideological views of a given party and they'd become a lot more consistent over time.
0: Mm-hmm. And then that comes back maybe to the, the cable TV question.
1: Yeah, and, and so cable TV certainly... Likely has had an important role in in driving nationalization of politics. Right. As you shift away from you know local newspapers to national cable TV, that's going to have um, important effects.
0: Right. I I read a book in college now, more than twenty years ago. That's really stuck with me, <laughs> except the title. I can't remember the title, but um, basically the argument that the author was making was with the rise of television, you have the the rise of, of the right. And his argument was, it's not a value judgment, but that the arguments you can make on television are, are simpler, not better or worse, but simpler because there's just, because of the, the the way that the medium works, there's less room for nuance. And so you have yes or no. So, you know, do you agree with affirmative action, Senator, you know, yes or no? Well, you know, it's a complicated question and you know, mm-hmm. yes or no. And so yes or no works better for for conservatives, and if you're talking about so why there is structural poverty, those are those are long, in-depth, complicated conversations that don't work real well for television. I know that's not the argument you're making, but as I was reading your work, I was thinking about that as well. I'm going to ask you just a final question. So, as my my dad listens to the show, he oftentimes comes away feeling pretty pretty down about the world, and. Um, <laughs> You know, I, so I've started doing this segment where the last question I, I asked the guests, what is, what is the one thing in the world that you're feeling most optimistic about? So I, I posed that question to you.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. To, to keep it on, on lines with sort of what we've been talking about, we've talked a lot about potential harms of media and media technology. But I think it's easy to forget a lot of the good that's come from media, the Internet, social media, etc. And and there's a lot of evidence that these technologies have substantially improved the livelihoods of many around the world. And in particular, perhaps those that are the least fortunate, those in extreme poverty that that we have a hard time even understanding here in, in the United States. And so I think. There, there is room to be hopeful about um, I think the world as a whole in terms of um, when, when we're thinking about, you know take, taking the views off of ourselves or, or the United States. So there's been massive reductions in kind of global poverty over the past 40, 50, 50 years. That's just hard hard to comprehend how how quickly that's changed. And a lot of that's had to do with you know, a lot of people in China getting out of poverty. But with China's growth and development, but also in other places, India, Africa, Latin America, you know, Southeast Asia. There's just been a lot of dramatic economic growth among these poor regions, and some of that has been associated with kind of the rise of the internet and, and these communication technologies. Um, so not everything in the in the world's bad, you know. Um, <laughs> no. You know, you know, even even if if we talk about, you know, race uh, kind of divisive politics, we have still made a lot of progress from from a point where, you know, segregation, racial segregation was the norm. And so not everything's bad there either. We've made progress on certain dimensions that most people would think are positive.